On this episode, the Honey Badger is back, the EV honeymoon is over, and the fastest Adam since Oppenheimer. And we bring back the Dro Report after a long hiatus with the latest lineup of BMWs. Don't forget to like and comment and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast. Follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91octane. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go under the hood and cover the latest in headlines. What does Rolls-Royce, Porsche, and GM have in common? They want their cars in the hands of enthusiasts, believe it or not. That includes Rolls-Royce. The Rolls-Royce CEO said you will be blacklisted if you flip their new Spectre EV. So they're taking a strong stance against buyers who flip their cars for profit. Obviously, this is going to ruffle some feathers in the uh, rich car, rich car guy segment. So apparently, deep-pocketed buyers have been purchasing limited editions or you know high-cost uh, cars and then immediately flipping them for higher prices. Uh, I mean, we we see it really up and down the spectrum of used car sales, uh, but it looks like some companies have sort of had enough with the flipping uh, side of this. It's sort of like the StockX uh, market for vehicles. That's for high-dollar vehicles here. And so the CEO said that fli uh, flippers will be permanently blacklisted and will not be able to buy Rolls Royces in the future. Most of the people complaining um, seem to be like a lot of those like luxury used car sale companies um, that you hear a lot. I mean, we have a lot of them in California. But they're the ones that are like the loudest, of course, like they're doing it as a business. They're going to have more capital to be able to do this and make, you know, some good money off of these cars. But um, that's not the point. And Rolls Royce joins Porsche and GM in this uh, sentiment. Both Porsche and GM have expressed their frustrations and also implemented measures to stop this from happening. Maybe not as aggressively as Rolls Royce in some cases, um, you know, where you're getting blacklisted and you can no longer buy cars. But Porsche and GM have taken step forward to prevent that, mostly with uh, voiding warranty. If you're doing it right, if you're doing that, then you you no longer uh, have the full warranty. There are other measures they've taken also of putting people on lists to prevent them from buying cars in the future. Of course, there are always ways around this, even if they put your company on a list. I'm sure you'll probably register another company to buy that car and so on and so forth. But at least there are measures being implemented to stop this from happening. Will I be buying a Rolls Royce? No. But the more players that are doing this in the automotive space, the more likely it is to stick. Now, it's kind of I go back and forth on this because on the one hand, if you've bought the car, it's yours to do with whatever you want, right? It shouldn't really matter to the manufacturer, um, you know, that you're that you're reselling it immediately. Uh, most of the time, this has been done with a lot of like supercars. I think that Ford did it with the with the GT um, for a little while. I think John Cena was in the news for selling one. Um, and, but now we're hearing about more cars being covered around this policy. GM did it with the Z06 specifically, um, with both dropping warranties and restricting future allocations to that particular buyer. Um, so they have taken steps with specific cars, uh, which makes sense, right? I mean, what we want to cover is sort of the enthusiast segment. It'd be nice to see, um, you know, prices do for there to be something that is controlling prices. But like I said, at the same time, uh, it, the free market, right? It should dictate if this happens or not. If there's somebody out there willing to pay more for that car um, and have it be sourced by, you know, somebody else, who's to say that that shouldn't happen? Um, for me, it's easy to say, well, I want, I want all cars 
to come with a lower cost. Therefore, we can all enjoy them. But that's really just being selfish as a car guy in terms of wanting that. Of course, cost is getting out of control. So anything to kind of even things out would be great. Uh, do you want to pay 200000 for a Z06? Or would you rather it be restricted so people have the opportunity to buy them from Chevy at MSRP? it's hard to say. I guess it depends on how much money you have. That's where your opinion is going to land. Uh, but in the next headline, the Honey Badger is back, baby. And I have some t opinions on two different sides on this. So Red Bull's announcement of Daniel Ricciardo's return to Formula One with AlphaTauri uh, turned a routine tire test into a major news story. I mean, that's that's how this whole thing started. It was announced that uh, Ricardo was doing a tire test, and it seemed that this was less so a tire test and more so a audition uh, for a seat in a Red Bull, in this case, an AlphaTauri. So it became major news. Um, the reason why I'm on both sides of the fence here is, like, on the one hand, uh, I like Daniel Ricardo. I think he's cool. I think a lot of people like Daniel Ricardo because of Drive to Survive. Also, he was one of the more popular figures in that show, at least early on. Um, and so he has a, I think he has a big following and everybody's happy to see him in a seat again and kind of getting out of the funk that he was in um, that, you know, I guess McLaren is getting blamed for. But it's also nice to see new faces in F1 and give new drivers opportunities as well. So whenever you're kind of sort of, recycling drivers through you know the the f1 teams um it's kind of like ah let's just let's give someone else a shot um devries i guess you know he did really well in formula e but i guess that wasn't enough to translate into f1 um at least not with alfatari it, it didn't really work out for him he made it half a season and now ricardo is taking his seat now, Ricardo's comeback does put pressure on Sergio Perez uh, to improve his performance. There's been a lot of talk, and this this is, I, I don't know, it's hard to tell what's real and what's serious and what's not serious, right? You're never really going to know what Red Bull's actually thinking. We're getting it from, like, news source A, B, C, through Z, um, and there's differing opinions. On the one hand, I mean, you do want... Uh, both your drivers are performed very well. Sergio had a great start. Um, he's sort of slowed down now. Verstappen is saying that in that Red Bull, you should be at minimum third place. Uh, no less than that. Sergio I think, finished sixth at Silverstone in this last race. And people are calling like, oh, that's not enough. That's not good enough. Because of what Verstappen is doing in that car. Um, I think. To say that Ricardo is putting pressure on Sergio is completely ignoring the fact that Verstappen is driving like an F1 god right now. And really, there's no bigger pressure than that. Imagine being the second driver for Red Bull right now. You're seeing Verstappen take the same equipment that you have and perform surgery every track every f1 weekend day in day out just consistently plowing through like he's like playing in legendary mode and everybody else is just starting to play the game i don't know that you get more pressure than that i mean if i'm sergio perez i'm not really worried about daniel ricardo of course you think like well okay well they're preparing him kind of giving him a shot to see if he can get back in the Red Bull seat. But at the same time, it's I'd be thinking, damn, okay, what's Verstappen doing that I'm not doing? I'm using the same machine, but I'm having very different results. So what can I change? What can I improve on? What can I do here? I mean, I think that's where the pressure is coming from. And some people say that seat is a Kirk seat. Alex Albon uh, went through that. Uh, you know, I guess all of Verstappen's partners and one way or another start seeming a little less confident, but I think it's unfair because 
it's not like he's performing bad, right? Like if Yuki Sonoda had a year like Sergio has had so far, I don't know. I feel like it'd be a completely different narrative. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess this puts a little pressure on Sergio, but I don't imagine it puts it that much more pressure than what he's getting from Verstappen. Um, and so Ricardo gets past that tire test, that race seat, and apparently that is what did it. That's what convinced Red Bull to say, hey, uh, Ricardo, I think you deserve a seat. We're going to let DeVries go, and uh, we'll see what the rest of the season looks like for you. Red Bull can do this because I believe, I'm fairly certain, um, that all drivers are um, essentially Red Bull drivers when they get contracted out. So Red Bull can pull really from any of the drivers between AlphaTauri and Red Bull um, to give them a seat. I think this is what worked out for Ricardo and in jumping into the AlphaTauri. Who knows, um, you know, how well he's going to do. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, him on the track again and seeing what he does and having a comeback. It'd be awesome to kind of have that little Cinderella story and see him do well. But we'll see. Uh, maybe he helps out Yuki uh, as well. Should be an entertaining friendship at the very least. Drive to Survive, the whole Netflix team right now is like, yes. I mean, at this point, man, like, I wouldn't be surprised if they're, like, behind the scenes trying to work different scenarios, different narratives to make the show better. I don't know. I mean, like, wouldn't you, right? If you have a show based around uh, F1, you want that drama. And maybe you're in someone's ear saying, hey, give Ricardo that seat. Let's see. Let's see him. Um get that comeback but the claim is that ricardo is performing well enough to deserve that seat according to red bull and that's why he got it there are rumors that red bull hopes that perez will be motivated motivated by this move like i said I, I don't know that there's any bigger motivation than seeing you know the uh the verstappen lap times in that car but you know maybe this does this does light a fire in perez maybe he's letting off the gas a bit because Verstappen sort of secured the championship for Red Bull. And there's really no reason to be mad at uh, Sergio Perez's performance other than, you know, you wanting to be, I guess, greedy or putting it a big enough buffer for you to win the Constructors' Championship. And But I think they've got that buffer already. Um, and with how Verstappen is driving, it's going to stay pretty consistent, at least through him through the end of the year. Um, but it's pretty interesting. I mean, it, it's an interesting shakeup. It's going to be fairly dramatic. We're going to see more Ricardo, which is never uh, a bad thing. Uh, but I'm curious to see how the story is going to unfold. Now into our next headline, Caterham, if you've never heard of them, is bringing a new sports car to the U.S. They actually showed a lightweight electric sports car that is set to be released in 2026. Caterham has unveiled its Project V concept. And this is, they did it at the Goodwood Festival that's going on right now. Um, and they've unveiled this electric sports coupe that could go into production in 2026. Um, I think they're playing it safe in terms of the timeline, but in terms of actually releasing it, it looks like they're pretty close. The, con the project concept they unveiled is more so a production-ready version than it is a concept version that you know still has to go through engineering and such um, and they are planning on building 2,000 units starting each year starting in 2026 um, it's designed to be simple light fun to drive it's sort of I mean the way they describe it it sort of sounds like uh, the 86 right the FRS in that car when it was coming out and what the what the plans behind that were was it's got an interesting interior concept probably because it's small it's got two seats in the front and one in the back. It's so odd to look at because there's it looks like they might have been able to fit like two seats, like really small seats in the back, kind of like some of the coupes that are sold right now. But instead, they were like, screw it. We're just going to put one seat back there because it, it's just not big enough for today's humans. Um, so it's a two plus one seat layout. 
Um, and they're targeting a real-world range of 249 miles, just pretty good for, like, a sports car, right? A car that's not really considered to be a daily driver. It's more of a fun car, but that's pretty good mileage. Um, it's powered by a single electric motor. I'm guessing they're probably going to have more options later, but the motor does put out 268 horsepower capable of a 0-60 to 60 in 4.5 seconds with a top speed of 143 miles per hour. So you're not you're not talking about like supercar numbers here. I mean, you're talking about affordable sports car numbers. I think a 0 to 60 of 4.5 seconds is respectable. Those are like 2010 ice numbers, internal combustion numbers in terms of you know con- considering what you would consider uh, high performance in the sort of mainstream OEM segment. Um, so it's not slow by any means, but there are a lot of faster cars out now. Uh, it has two lithium-ion battery packs that are put strategically on the car for weight that manages weight distribution. And it's expected to cost uh, less than 80,000 pounds. Now this is, um, you know, like let it's like ninety five thousand uh, dollars, roughly, um, which I would say is obtainable. It's still a very, very expensive car, um, but I would say anything under a hundred thousand is probably obtainable in one way or another, either through being upside down on a loan or through hustling and grinding and getting that money. Um, but it is possible to have them, and they look pretty cool. I mean, it looks like a very, very modern... Uh, it reminds me sort of like Lotus design elements in terms of uh, what you're looking at. Sort of like almost McLaren-esque smooth lines, um, just without the McLaren cost, really. And the most surprising thing is that um, this production version concept that they have put out has been announced that is planned to be sold globally, including the U.S. Now, if you're spreading 2,000 cars across the entire world, that doesn't leave a long list in order to get this car. But I imagine if it does well the first year, and it should do well if only 2,000 are available at less than 80,000 pounds or $95,000 to get one, and then maybe the following year, 2027, they make more. This touches on the concept that I've talked about in previous podcasts in that now I'm not as opposed to EV because EV opens up the doors for a lot of other companies, bespoke companies or bespoke companies, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, you know, major OEMs, uh, you know, garage boutiques that want to build cars to build cars and not have to go through all the red tape that you have to go through in order to get a car sort of emission certified or, you know, all you have to really focus on is safety and function of the car. And we're going to start seeing a lot more different brands, I think, starting to come over into the U.S. that we haven't seen before. Alpine said they are coming over to the U.S. We covered that a few weeks ago in terms of the uh, having at least two sports cars they're going to have over here. And I don't think they would have invested in an ICE program to move uh, to the U.S. But the EV program works in, in a variety of ways. The first is the the what I just described, right? The ease of getting a car up and running and in the market without having to work through all the emissions rate red tape. Second to that, the U S has probably the biggest EV infrastructure in the world right now. And will probably not be caught up by any country anytime soon, right? With how aggressively we're moving in that direction. So, it's a lucrative market for a lot of these companies to start investing. And now we're getting to the side of the uh, EV market where we're seeing companies invest invest in sports cars and not just passenger vehicles that we have seen so far. Um, the passenger vehicle thing is actually cooling off a bit. And we'll talk about that a little more um, because the EV honeymoon is over. People are sick of them. 
Um, in the same you know breath that I'm saying, you know, sports cars are now getting a spike through some like less regulation that you have on the EV side. The passenger vehicle side of EVs is taking a hit. Um, it's it's just it's not working, and the value of them is going down. Ford is actually facing um, an inventory problem with EVs. With more Mustang Mach-E's and F-150 Lightning pickups um, sitting in lots, not being able to sell them. They have more of them on hand that they can sell, which is crazy because there was already limited production of a lot of these cars compared to like pre-pandemic levels. And in the second quarter of 2023, the Ford dealer only sold 27% of their Mach-E inventory within 30 days. In the same period last year, they sold 87% of the inventory in the same period. That's a huge drop. That is a 50% drop in cars being sold. Like the honeymoon is over for these cars. I don't know. I don't know. I can only speculate what it is and what's sort of driving this down. But although, you know, the U.S. infrastructure is huge, there's still a lot of opportunity in terms of the EV infrastructure and being able to reliably, you know, go across country or really put a lot of miles on the car. And there's also the political element of fighting EVs, which the UAW is actually going through um, right now. And we'll touch on that too. But uh, the sale of the Mach-E in the second quarter fell by 21%. And the turn rate of the Lightning uh, has also decreased with 39.3% of the inventory sold within the last 30 days. Um, Ford, Ford is actually targeting to produce 600,000 cars this year. But, I mean, they might want to slow down. And it's what's crazy is they actually are selling all these cars at a loss. I didn't, I didn't know how significant the uh, loss is. Of course, these are accounting numbers that you're describing a loss in. I mean, a company can't really operate if they're you know, legitimately not profitable. But there are ways to balance accounting where you are technically uh, operating at a loss, but realistically you're actually making some money. I won't get into the details of that. But they're expecting a loss of at least $3 billion, and they're losing 58000 per EV sold. That blows my mind. That blows my mind for each car. Like, imagine losing that much money every time you sold a car. And this is just to get the car off the ground. I mean, that's that's sort of what they're what they're trying to achieve here and kind of get into the EV space. Kind of makes me wonder, like, you know, the Teslas and those cars and all the early EV cars. I mean, you hear of them being sold at a loss, but I've never actually had an actual figure like 58,000 per car that is crazy and tesla and gm are also facing inventory challenges everything is slowing down and even used electric cars are now 30 percent cheaper than they were a year ago now let's be honest about that number it's essentially in the used car market i think what we're seeing is a reduction back to normal where, you know, during the, the pandemic just boosted prices for a really long time. And at that, I think now we're seeing those prices come down to a normal level, um, which would actually motivate people to buy used cars as opposed to getting something new. But it looks like people are moving away from EVs, at least for now, for passenger vehicles. It seems like it's not something they are looking for at the moment um which is cool i mean i guess that the market for ice just lives on a little longer but it is odd that we're seeing such an extreme change in numbers but speaking of the battle ev versus ice uh, corporate greed is now dealing with one of the largest labor protests in history the uaw begins bargaining as the industry braces for a tough tough period of contract negotiations at least according to the uaw um i mean the writers uh hollywood ups boeing mcdonald's i mean you got starbucks 
all have strikes across the country. I mean, there's a good portion of the population fighting for labor rights at the moment. And the United Auto Workers are seem to be included uh, included in this. So Sean Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers, plans to conduct contract negotiate negotiations with Detroit automakers differently this year. He actually said he intends on employing political tactics, social media messaging, and focusing on garnering support for organized labor. Um, there are concerns that currently exist regarding the impact of the industry shift to electric vehicles on employment and earnings. So although the UAW is fighting for workers' rights, they do have big concerns with EV cars uh, right now sort of taking over the industry, which is weird because... A lot of these companies, uh, the OEMs, your GMs, right, your th that are based out of Detroit, are investing a lot in EV uh, vehicles and EV infrastructure and EV manufacturing, and a lot of the plants are being transitioned to that side of things. So it's surprising that they are still so hesitant about the shift to electric vehicles. Maybe there are less jobs. Maybe it's easier to produce them. I don't know enough about producing EVs, and they're trying to avoid that. But it it does seem weird that you're still fighting that at this day and age, considering your companies or the companies that your workers work for um, will likely be building these cars in the future. Now, one big thing, though, is that there are contract negotiations with a Canadian labor organization um that would send uh, those workers to GM essentially to take the place of the United Auto Workers. So they're trying to fight that. That one makes sense. I mean, like, why is Canada sending people to work here? I mean, it's, it's a labor organization, so a lot of these uh, folks that are involved in this organization are likely U.S. citizens. But it's a little strange. A Unifor is sort of fighting to take the UAW space. Um, they aim to change the culture of the union and be more aggressive and offensive minded. The UAW does have a few, um, you know, it's been in the news for corruption. There's some speculation that they're always on the up and up, but I mean, in terms of protecting the auto workers, I mean, they've been doing that forever. And now apparently they want to go on the offensive in terms of what they want for their workers. And he even said he's willing to use work stoppages and strikes so that uh, workers receive their fair share out of the work that's being done to build all these cars. Um, and that's huge, right? If he's already said that that's on the table, I don't know if they're expecting these negotiations to be difficult. But, I mean, they really, really went on the offensive here. And to say that they're willing to go on strike really, really puts it to the uh, um, you know American uh, car builders, the OEMs, the manufacturers of most of the cars that we see on the street the effects of the strikes would be huge so for general motors they would use they would lose about 770 million dollars in earnings per week ford 620 million per week stellantis 470 million per week I mean, this is huge, huge losses. I mean, a single week can get you almost a billion dollars in losses. And this includes like an estimate of stock share losses and production and all that. It's not just producing cars. I mean, there's a lot to consider when you consider value. But nearly a billion dollars get wiped out every week that the uh, UAW workers... Uh, or United Auto Workers aren't producing for these companies. That is, I mean, it, to, to put it differently, right? The United Auto Workers produce each week $770 million for GM, $620 million for Ford, and $470 million for Stellantis. I think that's, that's what the UAW is trying to say, right? They are trying to say, look, we want our fair share because we're producing nearly a billion for you every week. I think that's the message they need to drive, and that's insane. That is that gives them an incredible amount of power um, on you know moving forward these negotiations. And if you know the OEMs don't see this, they're going to be in a lot 
a lot of trouble. But anyway, mix some protons, neutrons, and electrons, and you get an atom. Add a six-speed sequential and a type bar motor, and you get the aerial atom. Specifically, the new atom 4R was revealed to have a Civic type R engine pushing 400 brake horsepower and made as lightweight as you can get. They unveiled a, surpri a surprising unveiling of this car. They did unveil the Atom 4, but they hadn't really talked about there being an R version of that car. And they put the Honda Civic Type R engine, which they had been doing already with previous versions, but they made some changes to it that re uh, increased the power by 25%, putting it at 400 brake horsepower and 369 pound-feet of torque, which is insane in what is essentially a go-kart. I know they've gotten bigger than they used to be, but, I mean, that's essentially a go-kart. It also comes with a Quave six-speed sequential uh, gearbox, which is pretty cool as well. You're not doing the normal shifting anymore. And an aero package with front and rear wings, a rear Venturi, providing a lot of downforce, right, and limiting the drag. I mean, that car, like I said, it's a go-kart. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take too much, but it's got some fancy parts on it. It's capable of a 0-60 to 60 in less than 2.7 seconds. That is insane. That sounds like so much fun. 0 to 106.5 seconds with a top speed of 170 miles per hour. This is wild because, uh, you know, I see, I've see i seen them on a track uh, every once in a while. Um, but it's, I don't know. Like, I know you're in a car. But what I'm saying is it's sort of like the danger of being in a motorcycle but the dynamics of being in the car, just because it feels so open and you're, I mean, you collide with anybody. Most of the cars out there are, you know, passenger cars that have been converted to race cars, not, you know, atoms that have been purpose built to be extremely light and extremely fast. So you've got to be careful out there with some of, the <laughs> some of those Corvettes, right, that uh, might put it on you. Uh, or might appear out of nowhere, or aren't predictable when they're driving. Um, so I've always wondered. I mean, it seems it seems cool to have an aerial to kind of play around with. Um, you know, to like essentially have a go kart to run around each track. You can't you can't drive it on the street. They'll never be street legal. They're definitely a purpose built toy. But um, yeah. I, I would I would definitely enjoy having, especially one with 400 horsepower and the sequential transmission out of the box. I mean, most of the time, if you want a sequential transmission, you're doing it yourself. You're going to have to put build that into the car. You know, you're not going to find a company that's giving you a car with a sequential transmission that isn't like a six figure car. This car Starting at eighty five thousand, which is wild to me. I know there are limited parts on this car. I mean, like it's essentially like this little cage on wheels, but eighty five thousand, that is not bad. It's a lot of money, but relatively speaking to other dedicated track cars or you know OEM cars that are meant to go to the track, your Porsches, your M cars, that is pretty pretty affordable comparatively relative relatively speaking um now i don't know like if it loses its novelty right you take it out a few times i don't know if there are like spec series for aerial atoms i imagine there aren't a lot here maybe there are a lot in europe but out here i might see one on a track day i don't think i've ever seen more than one usually there's one out there but no more than that so it isn't really that you can do much. I mean, it's sort of an HPDE car with a lot of performance, but not that you can really compete in. I imagine that there's a lot of safety issues with doing that. Maybe there are some power-to-weight ratio classes, some unlimited classes that you could run it in. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, I'd, I'd imagine you'd have to do a lot to it to get it prepped for those classes, even if it was NASA. 
I'd be interested to find that out. I think I need to take a look at that and see where the Atom 4R specifically would land if I were to buy one. Now, I mean, I, on my list of cars that I want to own is enormous. It's probably like the longest list that I can recite from memory. But the Atom is somewhere on there. It'd be cool, you know, to kind of get one for a little while. I do imagine it being like a car that I get for like a year, have fun with it, and then sell it. It's not a car that I would want to keep. I think right now all the cars that I've purchased are cars that I want to keep uh, and would only sell if I absolutely had to. Whereas the Atom would take the slot of, I'm going to have fun with this a few track days, but then I'll let someone else have fun with it later. I don't know that there'd be any reason to keep it. I mean, you can't drive it on the street, at least not legally, um, out here. So it's limited use, right? It's a very, very sharp knife that you can use for one thing. That one thing is really, really fun. And it's really, really cool to get out there. But I do already have a race car. So balancing the time between both those two cars, I'm clearly just trying to convince myself not to buy it because I'm like at the edge of my seat wanting to buy one. Um yeah, there's a lot of other cars that I need to have before I get into something like this. Anyway, in the future, if you want that powerful rumble of an ICE engine, you're going to need a really good sound system. We're going to have to go through the days of like the early 2000s, late 90s, where you're putting, you know, four 12-inch subs in your car because you want that to power and propel your car forward. I remember... God, the car scene was so huge back in the day. But I remember uh, through, like, extracurricular clubs. I forget which club it was. But as part of that club in high school, there was, like, this social event where we were all going to go. We were all going to go to a ice rink. And yeah, I think we were just going to skate. And, um, like, older kids, like, older brothers and sisters helped out to drive people to this event. I think all of us were like, I don't know, freshmen and sophomores at the time. And so there was a lot of older cousins, older brothers and uncles and such coming out. And I get stuck in this IS 300 and, um, I say stuck. I don't know why, but they give me a ride and the whole way, it was like a 25 minute trip and the whole way, all they're playing are the subs the bass that's it there's i mean they've taken out the the highs the mids i mean all all that's gone it's just the bass i i actually don't even know how they did it where i couldn't hear anything else through those speakers i don't know if that track they were playing was just bass but that's all it was just like i mean but like violent rattling bass um, it was almost like it was for everybody else and not for them because it was driving me crazy. And I love bass. I mean, I, I was the guy putting 212s in my cars. My first E36 had a speaker box with 212s in it um, that I actually found next to a dumpster and rebuilt into something functional. Um, that was pretty cool. But it just it just blew my mind. And so there was a lot of that back in the day. And it looks like now you have to do it. Two, the Hyundai Ioniq 5N's drift spec model brought a fake exhaust to Goodwood. Um, I understand the purpose. And it's crazy to me that this is sort of where the world is at the moment. Um, they're not the first ones to do this. There was a vendor at SEMA, actually, that was selling a unit that you put where the exhaust would normally be on a car, and it was a speaker that made sound, and you can hear it, and you could connect to the car, and it would sync up. But there was a point, I think, I don't know when, let's call it 10, 15 years ago, where this would have been cringe as hell. I mean, why? You know, why do you need this? But there are some compelling reasons on why you would want to do this. Um, it has a very distinct combustion-like burble sound is what they describe it as. Um, and it's you can hear it at idle. Uh, and it's created by their N-Active sound system using the car's 10-speaker system. So 
the ionic system is actually meant to be directed towards the driver. And so you could argue that, you know, we as drivers of vehicles are used to the um, auditory response that we get from hearing the car, right? That's how most of the time that's how we know when to shift. We're not looking at our RPM gauges 100% of the time. The sound of the car is telling us whether consciously or subconsciously, how to navigate the vehicle through streets, at the track, whatever it may be. So by taking that away, you might get users that have to get accustomed to driving a car in a different way. So maybe they're trying to make the situation a little easier. Uh, there have been cars in the past, and I think the Supra had this, where um, you, could, you heard the car through the speakers as an enhanced feature. I don't think that's necessary, but for a car that makes no noise, it does make a little sense to have this speaker system in there sort of giving you some feedback so you get an idea of where you're at, how fast you're going, and what you're doing, right? Get get you some audit, uh, the auditory element into your driving, or at least get it back into your driving. Um, they actually have a what they refer to as an NE shift, which simulates the shifts of a dual clutch transmission to enhance driver feedback. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't I feel like this is going to be a a fad that's gonna go. It's gonna be like um it's gonna be like those seatbelts in the eighties that used to put themselves on you automatically, right? They'd run uh, along the uh, a pillar up to the top and over your shoulders when you got in the car where that technology is going to be around for a while, but not for long. I just don't see like eventually everyone's going to get used to driving EVs. And, and I mean, there's already a lot of people used to driving EVs without having that speaker system giving you the sounds of a car. So eventually it's just not going to be needed. And it'll be a novelty that somebody will add, but then I imagine you'd get tired of it too. I mean, you, most people get tired of the pops and burbles too. I mean, if, unless you never grow up. But yeah, I don't. I don't see it going long term. Um, now, the ten, ten speaker system is likely leveraged for music too. It's not just for this, or at least I would hope so. It would suck if you can't play music because you got to hear it. It's going to be either hearing your car. Or playing music. That would suck. That wouldn't be cool at all. Um, but it is cool that Hyundai is invest investing in sort of end models of their EV cars. And the Ionic 5 drift spec car looks pretty cool. Are we ever going to see one on the street like that? Absolutely not. Uh, especially with it putting down 641 horsepower and 567 pound-feet of torque. And this is, uh, it's funny, they have a, uh, a sort of boost system called the N-Grin Boost. Grin, like smiling grin. N-Grin Boost. And that gives the, uh, the car a boost for 10 seconds that can get the car to from a 0 to 60 um, in 3.4 seconds. Without it, it takes 3.5 seconds. So you get 0.1 second faster, which I, I think you could feel from 3.5 to 3.4. I think you could feel that for sure. But, man, that is a small, small increment for the Engrin boost. Um, but that's cool. Like uh, the, the, the 5N, that's not the drift spec. That's just the 5N that has that much power. I don't know that you know what you would do with it in like a little crossover. Um, you know how you would use that car other than just being on the street. And most of the time on the street, you're not going to really use a lot of that power. But at least you know it's cool to say you have it. Um, and it's an all-wheel drive car. Maybe you can make it a viable option for the track. But I think it'd be uh, there'd be plenty of other options to take before that car. But for them to invest in a 10-speaker system to pipe in sound to the driver to make it sound like it's a nice engine, I don't know. That's an added cost I can do away with, right? Like it's an op I mean, if I can pay less for the car without that, please, I don't need it. Most of the time, I'm going to turn it off. And, you know, probably after the first week, it'll be off permanently. Now, the VAG is getting 
pounded. And that's the Volkswagen Auto Group. Uh, Volkswagen CEO Schaefer uh, had a meeting where he talked to the managers and he told them that the roof is on fire. Thomas Schaefer warned of tough times and emphasizes the severity of the challenges facing VW. He, he actually asked their management team to immediately freeze spending and urge them to achieve small wins. VW seems to be in bad shape. Um, and, and the way they're talking, it seems like they're already well into the disaster that they're describing right now. It isn't that they're trying to prevent a disaster. It's more like they're trying to mitigate and reduce uh, the disaster they are already in. Uh, he plans to introduce performance programs to save 10 billion euros in spending over the next three years, uh, which is huge. And anytime you start choking a business in terms of expenditures like that, you're going to start losing talent. You're going to start losing, you know, quality of parts. Uh, the first thing to go is training and testing whenever, uh, whenever you're working through any type of project. So the quality of things are going to go down. Um, who knows? Because that's only going to make the problem worse for VW. I mean, they have to invest in making good cars. And right now, it's not looking too good. And apparently, most of their problems are because they're investing heavily in EV technology. I mean, if they wouldn't have scammed, you know, had that diesel scam, they'd probably have a lot more money right now. They had to pay out a lot when they got in trouble for fudging their diesel numbers. Um, but yeah, they're losing sales in China, which is huge for them. Um, they're actually launching the ID7 sedan in Europe soon and are unveiling new uh, Tiguans and Passats. But I don't think VW is a brand that people are really looking up to anymore. I don't know that it ever really was you know, a bigger brand than, let's say, a, like a Honda is probably comparable. But now, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, it, with with everything these other companies are doing, you know, your Toyotas, your, you know, your Fords and and the performance cars that they're coming out. It's easy for me to say, OK, those c companies are making a lot more noise because I'm paying attention to that side of the world, to the performance side of the world, right, to the race cars being developed and, you know, the racing that each of these companies are doing. But uh, you don't really hear of Volkswagen participating in a lot of this. I mean, they did have the IDR and and they're working through, you know, uh, EV racing and stuff like that. But just not as, uh, I guess, loudly as all these other brands are. Even Hyundai, right? Like even I think even Hyundai has gotten a little more uh, clout in the uh, performance driving space. Although they don't really have um, the pedigree, at least not yet, but they're working on it. Volkswagen, I don't know, seems largely absent. And the CFO, Patrick Mayer, said that the business is unwell and referred to this speech that was given to the managers as the last call. They're not even like they're I mean, they're not mincing words. They're like, this is it. We either figure this out now or we're in trouble. So I don't know that we're going to see a lot of development from the Volkswagen Auto Group going forward. I mean, I think they're going to be struggling to survive at least for the next three years. That's what they're planning, saving $10 billion in the next three years. If they get at least close to that, it'll be good. But when you're tightening up your pockets like that, you're not really going to go into a lot of development uh, of new cars. And any existing development is going to take a hit. And I think that's where they're at. So we'll follow that closely and see where they end up. Now, instead of following through on engine warranties, Toyota wants to breathe new life into your 2012 8.6. Granted, this is Toyota Japan. But Toyota will make your first Gen 8.6 look like new for $4,500. And we talked this talked about this a while ago when they, when they announced it. Um, but now they're releasing the details on what this means. So they introduced their 8.6 refresh service uh, for owners in Japan, right? This is just in Japan right now. Who knows if they'll bring this program stateside? I highly doubt it. 
but it's for cars produced between 2012 and 2016. And they offer five different uh, sort of refreshes. The powertrain refresh, um, rubber refresh, suspension bushing refresh, suspension refresh, mostly shock absorbers, and a brake refresh. Um, the engine refresh costs $870 and includes a thorough cleaning of the powertrain's internals and replacement parts for the ignition system, which really just means spark plugs. I doubt it means more than spark plugs. Maybe coils. Maybe spark plugs and coils. Uh, and then cleaning of powertrain internals. I don't know how they're doing that. I doubt they're popping valve cover gaskets. Maybe. At $870, maybe they're taking the valve cover off and cleaning it that way. But maybe they're just putting some chemicals through it i don't know 870 sounds like a lot for that though it, they don't really go into much detail beyond this beyond this yet in terms of the engine refresh but it doesn't sound like a lot now the uh rubber refresh this is where they add uh rubber on the engine the gearbox differential a muffler so this is a lot of gasket stuff 712 dollars I don't know. It's cheaper than the 870, but $712 for new rubber. This one, I mean, depending on how much work is involved, it's probably a little more reasonable. But they don't really go into detail on what rubber is being changed, right? I, I, it doesn't say. So how much work is there really in there? I don't know. But that gets replaced for $712. Now, the uh, bushings get replaced for $878. This is all suspension rubber. And then the shock, shock absorbers are refreshed for $1,179. And the brake refresh costs $903 and includes replacement parts for the calipers, new rotors, and brake pads. It's not much. Like, I mean, you could, from what is being described, most of the stuff that's in here, you could do yourself for maybe a quarter of what you're paying. Maybe even less than that. But let's let's say a quarter, like $1,100, $1,200. If you did it yourself. I mean, you could probably even get that stuff done for you for 1200 bucks at least at least if it's what i think it is in terms of the things that are replacing they don't really go into a lot more detail than this and right now this is only available in the japanese kinto factory and will expand to other gr garages um and it's intended to have a nationwide nationwide rollout in japan no absolutely no discussions of this happening out here I doubt it would happen out here. Maybe in Japan there's a bigger need for doing something like this, but I think out here it wouldn't fly. Um, I know, you know, Kia, I know it is a Kia, but Kia had like their B-Spec B -spec program for a little while when the Rio came out. Very few people sold those packages. Very few people bought those packages. Um, and then, you know, to hear 4500 for a refresh like this, I don't know, I feel like most... Eight six owners out here would probably just do that themselves. I know I'm biased in saying that because I like to you know do a lot of things myself on my cars, but I don't know forty five hundred dollars just it just sounds like too much money for what's being described, right? If there was a lot more described or a lot more specifics on what's being replaced, maybe there's forty five hundred dollars worth of work in there. But right now, it does not seem like it's there. But at least you have an option, right? At least you have an option. You're sitting on a raggedy 2012 8.6, and you want to breathe new life into it. You want it to feel kind of like new again. You could send it off to the Kinto factory in Japan and have them refresh all these things and restore some like new feeling. If it is, all the bushings and gaskets and such that I'm thinking there's there, you know, you'll feel the difference. It, you should feel it there. I mean, 2012 to, to 2023, you're talking 11 years of wear. 
you'll feel it. There, there are you know you feel some of those differences. Enough to warrant forty five hundred dollars out here? Maybe, maybe not. Now, let's go into the draw report. It's been a long time since we've hit a draw report, and what the draw report is, it's a demolition, rent or own. It's essentially fuck, marry, kill for cars. So we'll select three cars. And I'll talk through sort of what I would do with each. Would I demolition derby it? Would I rent it? Or would I choose to own it? And the cars for this week are the 2023 BMW M2 or the G87 M2, as it is known, the 2024 BMW M3 or the G80 M3, as it is known, or the 2024 Toyota Supra. So out of those two, I mean, you're talking about you know, three front engine cars, three real wheel drive cars, although the G80 does have an all wheel drive option. We'll exclude that for this one. But we've got two coupes. Well, actually one coupe and one two door hatchback with the Super B in the hatchback and a four door five passenger sedan in the G80 M3. Um, one factor would be the cost, right? We're talking base price, right? If you're optioning a car, it's going to be different, but base price for G87 M2, 63,200 base price for a G80 M3, 83,600 and an A90 Supra at the cheapest option, 53,595. Uh, the G87 and the BMW M3 both have the S58s in them aluminum top to bottom 3.0 liter twin turbocharged sixes but the m2 comes in at 453 horsepower whereas the g80 comes in at 503 horsepower now that is the competition version but that's the one we chose for this draw report now the uh, a90 supra uh, has the b58 with a turbo six that makes 382 horsepower but we know a lot of people that have taken them to a lot more. So they're very, very capable cars. I don't know still, though, based on those specs, just based on the power output, it would almost make sense, right, that the Supra takes the Demo Derby. But the G87 looks like it's halfway there, halfway into the Demolition Derby. And at 453 horsepower, you could do a little more damage. And the G80 BMW M3... Very, very close uh, in horsepower, but just a little prettier, I think, now. it. I still do think it has a buck-tooth front. I'm not going to deny that. But now seeing the G87 M2 come out, it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess it's not the worst. So if it's not the worst, it would get a leg up. I don't know. Both six-speed, uh, all three six-speed manuals with eight-speed automatic options. But let's talk size. The smallest of the three is the A90 Supra, wheelbase of 97 inches, length of 172 inches, and width of 73 inches, where the M2 and the M3 both are exact, exact in width, but the G80 is nine inches longer and has a wheelbase that is four inches wider. So if we're talking the Demolition Derby and the advantage of that, you would naturally then pick the G80 M3 to have the best chance in terms of size. But they are almost identical in weight, the G80 M3 and the G87 M2. There were talks of it being almost 100 pounds heavier, but it seems that it has come in the end almost exactly the same weight with the G87 M2 at 3,814 pounds and the G80 M3 at 3,840. Almost a negligible, negligible amount. I mean, you're talking 25 pound difference between both cars. So you're throwing around a lot of weight, although slightly smaller. The width is the same. It's just nine inches shorter. Makes it a little more agile. Maybe you can make a little more damage in the Demolition Derby. And I just noticed that I'm talking about the G87 M2 and the G80 M3 
uh, when discussing the Demolition Derby, but I haven't mentioned the A90 Supra. I mean, that, that makes sense. It's the smaller car. I think you're going to have less success, and it just feels like you're lower to the ground in those cars. As soon as you get hit, you're going to be KO'd. It's not even that the car's going to be damaged. You're going to be damaged. So the A90 Supra just is not the ideal car for the Demolition Derby. I think the M2... <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, the G87 M2 gets the Demolition Derby assignment. It's heavy. It's agile. And it has a lot of power. I mean, 453 horsepower out the gate. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of damage in a different way, right? It's sort of the mosquito approach, you know, taking everything down with jabs. I'm not going to hit super hard, but I'm going to be very agile, and I have enough weight to do damage. The 0 to 60 time uh, for the M2 is 3.8 seconds. That's what the manual. And 2.8 seconds in the G80 M3. Um so the M3, I mean, has all the numbers. This is the competition, of course, but they, they it wins a top to bottom. So now that we've decided that the G87 M2 is getting the Demolition Derby assignment, which one gets the rent and which one gets the own out of the G80 M3 and the A90 Supra? And this is where, I mean, the differences are significant, right? 0 to 60 on the uh, G80 M3, 2.8. 0 to 60 on the Supra, 3.9 seconds, almost a second off. Uh, quarter mile, 11 seconds at 124 for the M3. And for the Supra, 12.4 seconds at, at 114 miles per hour. But you're talking about a $30,000 price difference. What could you do with the A90 Supra if you could throw $30,000 at it as soon as you buy it, you're doing damage. You are definitely, definitely getting this car very close to the performance of the G80 M3 stock, right? Um, so the sort of dollar to performance ratio, I think, gives the Supra the edge, when I started this, I really thought I was actually like ready to say the the one thing I felt I was sure of was that the G80 M3 was going to get the own category, was going to get the that's the car I'm going to buy. That's the car that I'm going to keep and I'll rent the Supra. Maybe maybe I could convince myself to rent the M2. But now that we're talking cost and all, you know, I still I'm still not completely bought in to the new G80 M3. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Just not for me. I know a lot of people like it. I'm not saying, you know, that everyone should hate it. But it's just not for me. I, it, it does, the styling is just not there, um, even though things have gotten better with aftermarket kits. So to pay, you know, $83,000 for this car when I could pay 53000 and I know I'm completely ignoring dealer markup, but let's not go there. $53,000 for the Supra and have $30,000 uh, left over to, you know, do whatever to it to get it to these power figures that we're seeing on the G80 M3 side and increase its performance significantly. I'm de I'm definitely owning the Supra. I think, I mean, it's, that's, that's, that was, I think that's what we've come down to with this little argument I gave with myself. The G80 M3 definitely gets the rent. It's a slight, slight edge for the A90. And I think the reason it gets the edge is because of the cost. I've also already driven one, and I loved it. So that's a little unfair. I have not driven the G87 and the G80 yet. So I guess take that with a grain of salt. But I, I think I am taking the A90 Supra. Can I make up a second, a 0-60 to 60 second eh, with $30,000? I think I can. In a turbo car... I think I can. There's, I'm fairly certain I'm going to be exceeding the performance of the transmission before I get into, uh, you know, issues with the motor, uh, or at least that part of the powertrain. So, I mean, I think we can get up there pretty high, at least to 500 for sure. The 500 that G80 has with those thirty thousand dollars and some, and some. So, demolition derby, the G87 rent the G80 M3 and outright own the A90 Supra. 
What would you have done? Who is your number one out of this draw report list? Um, I'll throw a poll up on uh, on Instagram. See who uh, see who wins out of these three. Um, I, I'd probably expect the G80 to go number one right now, and sort of the A90 Supra being the mm, the underdog, the unlikable choice in this list because I, I considered not including it i considered it being the g82 m4 and the uh g basically the g's across the gm cars across uh, the list but i mean it's it's essentially just a two-door m3 so i figured i'd leave it out and the supra felt like a good contender even though it's sort of underperforming in a lot of the statistics here I think it takes to win. I'm definitely taking that as the own. And I still do want to own one. I got I got a that's that's pretty high up on the list. I would say maybe that's number 2 on the list. It sucks, man. The G87 M2 was number 1 on the list. I absolutely was ready to get one. I I keep saying this. I bought the E36 M3, the white one. Um because I didn't get to have my G87 M2 toy it just wasn't working for me so i'm like you know what i'm gonna get another project and have fun with that and not spend sixty five thousand dollars on a brand new m2 although that would have been nice and it's a latino m2 how dare they how dare they anyway that is our episode you can find us at 91octane.com all number no all letters no numbers uh follow us on instagram at 91 octane and if you want to send us any emails info at 91 octane.com uh thank you everyone thank you to everyone who listens thank you for tuning in week to week thank you for engaging on social media and youtube that is literally the easiest and fastest way to support the show and i appreciate you guys uh for doing that day in and day out if you got any ideas, any tips, anything you want to want me to discuss in future podcasts, hit me up, DM me, just let me know, email me, whatever it may be. Um, we are here for you. That's what 91 Octane is. We are here for you. Yep, but anyway, that is your automotive news and draw report for this week. Have a good night.